You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. On this edition, is San Francisco over? We'll hear about a new collection of writings about why people love it or hate it and why some who've loved it have left it. This book is called The End of the Golden Gate. For some people, it is the end of the Golden Gate because they uh, they want to get the hell out. They feel betrayed. They feel bereft. They feel that the place that nurtured the renegades and bohemians and misfits. So some people, yeah, it is the end of the Golden Gate. Mm-hmm. And others, and John and I, we're staying and we, you know, we defend it to some degree far more than a number of the writers in the book do. I'm Laura Wenis, and this is Civic. Before we get started, at the Public Press, which is Civic's parent organization, we've been working really hard during this pandemic to pursue angles we're not seeing much coverage of elsewhere, or to take a more systemic look at the issues that are surfacing in the headlines. The San Francisco Public Press is a nonprofit, and we're inspired by the public radio model. That's the idea that people who are able to support the work that we do so everyone can have access to it without paywalls or ads. If you think we're onto something, we'd very much appreciate if you could show your support. You can do that by going to sfpublicpress.org slash donate or by helping us get the word out about this show. Subscribe on whichever podcast platform you use or leave us a review. It really does help. So thanks. People who love a place like to accuse those who criticize it of having the attitude that the city peaked exactly when they got here and has been going downhill since. But every city is meaningful in a different way to the people who call it home, and that's of course very true in San Francisco too. One acclaimed local writer has now put together an anthology of reflections on San Francisco at a time when it's changed so much, in a long string of times when it's changed so much, and when there's lots of talk about people leaving. It includes words from notable locals like W. Kamau Bell, Margaret Cho, and Michelle T. This collection is called The End of the Golden Gate, and it launches at Litquake on May 26th and at the Commonwealth Club on May 27th. Gary Camilla, who edited the book, and writer John Law, who contributed an essay, sat down with me to chat about gentrification, the rent, and how so many people get told that they got here too late to see the city at its best. My name is uh, Gary Camilla. I'm the uh, author of Cool Gray City of Love, 49 Views of San Francisco, and my new book with the artist Paul Madonna, Spirits of San Francisco Voyages Through the Unknown City, and I write the Portals of the Past history column for the San Francisco Chronicle. Yeah, I am a longtime San Francisco uh, resident transplant from the Midwest and the South. Um, I've been fortunate to be in San Francisco and to be involved in a bunch of different groups, uh, mostly collaborative uh, collective endeavors, starting with a group called the Suicide Club, the San Francisco Suicide Club, which was an urban adventures, pranks, and just odd uh, exploratory group, uh, which anyone could join, anyone could create events for. That morphed into a thing called the Cacophony Society, which then in turn birthed uh, its, its, its largest uh, uh, ex- expulsion was the Burning Man Festival, which started out small mm-hmm. and became the behemoth that it became. Uh, <laughs> and it also uh, uh, spewed forth SantaCon. Uh, sorry about that one, folks. Oh, and, God, uh, why? <laughs> <laughs> it let me just it say, didn't it was, start like that. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Gary. And uh, yeah, and also uh, uh, the book Fight Club was based on the Cacophony Society. And uh, and so these are some of the things I was involved in. Once again, collaborative, collective effort, many people involved. 
And uh, I wrote, uh, co-wrote, a, a, co-authored a book called Tales of the San Francisco Cacophony Society in its second printing now in paperback uh, about that particular group with references to some other related groups. And um, a book of short stories called uh, The Space Between about bridges, of all things. So. Well, I'm so glad to be able to talk with you both, um, particularly about this new book, this forthcoming book, The End of the Golden Gate. And uh, I just I just want to ask, can, can we talk about the title, The End of the Golden Gate? Is it the end? What mm-hmm. ends when the Golden Gate ends? Well, I mean, I guess the title is really obviously hooked on the central theme uh, of the book. Uh, and the subtitle is writers on, you know, sometimes leaving, staying and sometimes leaving in San, San Francisco. And um, so, yeah, there's several dozen writers who all meditate on, you know, why they're staying, why they're leaving, why they want to leave, but they're staying, why they don't want to leave. Um, and all basically uh Dealing with uh, the the same themes uh, come up again and again, all refracted through uh, individual sensibilities. And the the recurrent themes are ones that, uh, you know, everyone who lives in the Bay Area has had this conversation uh, at any dinner party, any uh, gathering of more than, you know, more than one person talking about San Francisco. It all comes up. Has the city lost its soul? Mm-hmm. Uh, has the tech invasion ruined San Francisco? Has capitalism ruined San Francisco? Has gentrification ruined San Francisco? Um, you know, it isn't the same place that it was when I got here. And then everybody in the book uh, has a different reaction to that. And uh, that's what makes it interesting. It's kind of the same set of changes. There's not a lot of dispute about that. Um, but uh, so for some people, it is the end of the Golden Gate. Uh, because they uh, they want to get the hell out, they feel betrayed, mm-hmm. they feel bereft, they feel that um, the place that nurtured the renegades and bohemians and misfits and uh, that most writers uh, tend to see themselves uh, not exactly as nine to five salary people, but as uh, you know, to some degree, renegades or or people that don't fit into the orthodox workings of society. So some people, yeah, it is the end of the Golden Gate mm-hmm. and others. And John and I happen to be kind of in the defending the city, <laughs> uh, not blindly and not, not, not with any kind of, uh, you know, uh, you know, sort of Panglossian optimism. But we're staying and we, you know, we defend it to some degree far more than a number of the writers in the book do. So uh, so there's a whole range. And, yeah, whether you think the Golden Gate has ended or not is is up for each individual writer to decide. Mm. Yeah, you wrote. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I would just say, as far as the the title goes, the end of the Golden Gate. I would certainly agree. It's it is absolutely the end of the Golden Gate. This is in my forty six years here. I would have to say the fourth or maybe the fifth end of the Golden Gate that I've personally experienced. <laughs> okay, so it happens pretty frequently. And after the the first one is really hard. I mean, it just kicks you right in the stomach, and a lot of people don't survive that. But uh, cities aren't they're not humans, you know, you can't make them into a, a, a simple, uh, uh, you know, they're complex uh, uh, creatures and they're not, their, their basic uh, essence isn't uh, necessarily, um, I mean, they, they don't, they don't love people. They're, they're not about 
making you comfortable here. They're a, a physical, a psychic, and a, and a literal challenge always. And cities, I came to the cities from the country when I was a kid, and I came to cities because they're loud places with lots of flashing lights and controversy and, and uh, loud noises, and they're, they're cities. I mean, you know, you're, you're not, it's not a place where you're going to be able to necessarily always find a, find a relaxing moment. Um, they're there uh, and, and they keep you on your toes at their best. The city will keep you uh, awake, alive and, and engaged with new uh, activities, new ideas, new, new people. And San Francisco mm -hmm. hasn't changed. It, it, it's been through many iterations in my short, you know, 46 years here. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, Gary, you wrote this in your introduction. San Francisco is dead. Long live San Francisco, right? <laughs> yeah. No. And as John says, uh, those of us that have been here you know, for a while, and there's some writers in the book that, that predate uh, both John and me, but we're two of the, we go back a little further than most. I got here and I grew up in, I uh, was born in Oakland. I grew up in Berkeley and I came to San Francisco, to live in San Francisco in 1971. And, you know, there has been just uh, the people forget that got here in the 90s and they're talking about what a great artistic bohemian time that was. And I think that's true in many ways, but, you know, they forget the go-go 80s preceded that, which in many ways was if you're, you had a bohemian uh, anti-establishment slant, in, in many ways that was more nauseating than the tech uh, incursion. Uh, you know, you had shameless uh, stock traders flaunting their, uh, their, uh, their uniform on Union Street. Um, you know, driving in their Porsches with their sweaters tied around their neck. Uh, there wasn't even the, uh, I mean, you could argue that the down, the, the sort of very informal uniform of the gazillionaire tech moguls could bother you even more than the explicit announcement of wealth of the of the stock traders and the masters oh, yeah. of the universe. Yeah. But to me, the the masters of the universe was even worse because they were much more explicitly conservative politically as well. So, hmm. you know, that was that was a whole massive incursion, not of not of the same order of magnitude, certainly as the tech, um, the tech revolution. It wasn't didn't have as profound an impact on the entire world economy, but it was a big thing. Um, you know, it was a big change in the DNA of the city. And, um, you know, we've seen we've seen these changes as John says, again and again. Oh, yeah. And the level of consumerism of those of those uh, knuckleheads in the 80s was much more grotesque than the uh, than these Internet kids. Now, the Internet billionaires with their hoodies, you know, I mean, it's annoying and really uh, clap, not very classy at all, wearing hoodies to every. We just we don't have any love right. for anybody in this conversation, do we? But <laughs> but, uh, but the uh, for know, ourselves, but, you know, yeah, yeah right. 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 The, That's uh, important. You know, the kids, the kids <laughs> who came here from the and, and, and it's always kids who come here and they're coming here to to, to experience, you know, the city life and in a new world in the beginning of their setting out in their way. And so I can't even get that mad at the uh, at the Internet because some of them are my friends. Some of the like like yeah. it, it's like each generation. There are a handful of people in whatever iteration, whatever new generation come along who are, who are very creative and are doing things in the uh, underground world, which is a world I'm very familiar with. I mean, when I showed up here. I, I mentioned this in my essay. Uh, I showed up here in 1976, and I had heard there was a party here, right? And I heard San Francisco. What brings people here? The the romance of San Francisco, the idea, the myth of uh, sex and drugs and rock and roll, let's say. And people show up here for that reason, not just burnout, you know, kids or like like 15 year old uh, runaways, but you know, like engineers and scientists and uh, and 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 writers and and artists come here for that reason. They have for many many years. And I showed up here in '76 looking for the party. And everybody told me I missed a party. It was eight years before. 
because the 60s had had such a giant resonance locally and, and internationally that, and then when that was over, it was really over by the time it started in 1967. I've read a lot about that history. I know people who are involved in it, the generation before me, they were done in 67. I mean, by the summer of 67, the really interesting people who made that scene were leaving. They were going. Right. And what was left was a bunch of teenage kids who had no idea what to do with whatever city services they could, you know, cobble together to keep them from dying on the street. And then by the time I got here, there was still this wave of kids coming. I was one of those kids, runaway juvenile delinquent. That was me. And I showed up here looking for the party and all the toothless hippies told me that uh, the party was over. Like, you should go back to Tennessee, kid. You missed the party. And I've never been able to trust hippies ever since then because they were wrong. (laughs) (laughs) The moral of the story. Well, but and you're right that that's the last thing you would tell anybody coming here now. So what do you tell them? You asking me or, or Gary or both of us? Yeah, you. What do John. I tell them? I usually yeah. tell them. I'm 62 years old and I've been here for a long time. I've been involved in, I'd say, four different major iterations of weird underground creative stuff. And I tell them to hang out with the people, the young people who are doing stuff who are not telling old people what they're doing. Okay. There's stuff going on in San Francisco and Oakland Bay Area right now that's really maybe not as, it's, maybe it's not as pervasive as it was when I showed up here, but probably is. I just, I'm not being invited to all of the events that are happening. <laughs> but uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on underground. I, I can't talk about most of it because they'd kill me. But uh, Gary knows about some of this stuff. He's been on a couple of the, and he was sworn to secrecy. You know, he was you know, yeah. a journalist and <laughs> writes about this stuff. I mean, you know what you can write about and what you can't, right, Gary? Right. And there is stuff going yeah. on. And if you can't find it, go look for it. And if you still can't find it, get together with one other person and then maybe two other people, because then it's a conspiracy, and make your own make your own uh, environment. I mean, the people coming here who want to have uh, experience creativity. I mean, it's every, all the elements are still here; they're still in place. And now, with this uh, financial uh, restructuring and, and partial collapse, you know, the rents in my neighborhood have dropped 36 percent, down to like nearly mm-hmm. insane levels instead of completely supernaturally insane levels. And so you can live like I, I had to live with 10 roommates when I showed up here. And now you have to live with 20. You know, it's just, just equally annoying, I suppose. But uh, and there is stuff going on. There's a lot of under, I'm, I'm still involved in the underground exploration world. There's a lot of that stuff going on in the Bay Area um, here and there. And they don't put most of it online because they don't want it to be smushed or, you know, or, or wiped aside. Blown um, up. So I'm speaking with writers John Law and Gary Camilla about the forthcoming anthology of essays about San Francisco titled The End of the Golden Gate. You know, one thing that um, I think, Gary, you pointed this out, that it hasn't changed thematically about San Francisco is the gold rush. It's just that the Argonauts are now looking for a different El Dorado. Do you right. get the sense that any of the gold rush feel is being deflated by the pandemic, or is this just another bust in the boom and bust cycle that San Francisco always repeats? Well, it's an interesting question, you know, how how bad the pandemic's effect on the city's whole structure and economy um, as a sort of tech megalopolis and an office, massive office complex is going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the tech... Um, you know, the, the tech juggernauts, they may, there's a lot of talk now about reining them in, not just in San Francisco, but internationally, a lot of antitrust uh, discussion. So we may see some pretty fun, fundamental uh, changes in, in the technology's economic ability to control the entire global economy. But in terms of San Francisco, you know, there's, as John says, there's a fairly significant change that COVID ushered in, which a lot of folks left, a lot of people who were paying very high rents 
and, uh, you know, didn't have uh, to go into an office anymore, said, well, why should I pay $3,000 a month for a one bedroom uh, when I can go live in my parents or live in a state where I can, for $1,500, I can get a bigger apartment than that. And I don't actually even need to be in the city. Plus everything's closed. So there was a pretty bit, big exodus, pretty big rental drops. And, you know, it remains to be seen how much those people are going to come back. I think a lot of them will come back. I mean, we've seen even since vaccination rates have begun to climb to fairly respectable levels, we've seen traffic you can just sort of empirically sense it if you move around the Bay Area. It's coming back to life. It's harder to park. There's more traffic. There's more people on the street. So, and I think, you know, for those of us that, you know, have very mixed feelings about all the changes that have gone on in San Francisco, this is a very mixed moment. Uh, to right. some degree, you know, it, it's sort of the easy response is, gee, I hope all those bastards leave and never come back. Um, but you know what? Yeah. Be, be careful of what you wish for in the same way that people go, oh, I can't believe that you know they brought the techies they you know they made it possible for the techies to come in here people forget we had 10 percent unemployment you know we had like really really a depressed economy uh, before the, the the last tech boom started so cities do have to run to some degree as economic machines and the uh, obviously the growth and the exponential growth of the tech sector went far beyond what anyone realized it was going to do so i think that we're at this interesting moment where we could see, as a result of this uh, tech shakeout and the exodus, some rents dropping enough that the city will become more hospitable to artists and writers and dancers and poets and and underground art makers and just, you know, language poets and avant-garde solo jazz sax players and <laughs> all, these, all these people that where they really can't monetize themselves very easily. And they um, and, you know, so, yes, it would be great if there are warehouses in the Bayview and Petrero Hill and various places where, you know, artists and writers couldn't get spaces for affordable rents the way they used to be able to. Uh, perhaps that will happen to some degree. I, I'm pessimistic that it will ever happen uh, in the same way that it did before, partly because it's easy to forget this isn't just about tech. This is about global capital and this is about mm -hmm. global movement of people. And San Francisco has been discovered by the world as one of the absolute best places to live on the planet. It's one of the few places that has a Mediterranean climate. It's drop dead gorgeous. It's got this huge bay. It's got the ocean. It's got the hottest sector in the business uh, in driving the global economy. Everybody wants to live here from China, from Europe, from everywhere. So it's beyond just tech. Um, so it's never going to be just by the nature of capitalism. It's never going to return to what it was before, before it was kind of discovered in the 1970s, especially before, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the, before the, uh, uh, the boom started after that. And uh, so I don't think it'll ever be that affordable, but it could go back to some degree in that direction. And I think that would be great. I mean, I think that, there, yeah, there's a boom and bust cycle. Well, we, it remains to be seen, seen how big this uh, bust, this cur the current bust is. I don't think it's going to be huge right now. I think it's going to knock rents down. I think they went down about 20% in general. Well, and maybe it'll stay. In my neighborhood, yeah. In your, that's, that's a lot. Yeah. I yeah. think in some neighborhoods it, it was a little less than that. But certainly enough well, so to can make we, a difference. Can we talk about 
you know, just beyond the rents, though. I mean, like yeah. that is a significant thing. But the, what about the hospitality of this place in general? I mean, there's this persistent idea of San Francisco as a progressive mecca, as a place where people can come and they can be themselves. But that hasn't always necessarily been the experience of all the people who came here. I mean, the hippies, for example, weren't particularly welcomed by more conservative elements. And right now, as actually one of the essayists, Kimberly Reyes, points out in her essay, the city has a pretty significant problem of quiet racism. I mean, it, yeah. uh, quite apart from the rents, even if you tick all the boxes, you did all the things, you might still not feel like you fit in. Has that idea of San Francisco as this welcoming place with its arms you know, wide open, has it always been a myth? Is it a myth? <laughs> That's a good question. Is, is it a myth? Um I don't think it has always been a myth. I think that it's gotten a lot more difficult, and there are definitely uh, there are demographic and financial uh, economic reasons for that. If you look at the uh, uh, demographics of the city, it's a fact. You can't deny that when I moved here, 14, uh, 14% of the city was black, African-American, and now it's about 4 to 5%. And, uh, and these folks have been forced out through economics, I think, mostly, and that's, that's definitely squirrely. And that's in a liberal, that's in a liberal city. I mean, we're not uh, you know, Biloxi, Mississippi or anything. Um, and so, yeah, that's an undeniable fact, and, and uh, I have no idea what to do to rectify that issue. Um, and, that's, and it's not as welcoming a city, I think, to some people as it may be to others, and there's just no way around that. So mm. I, I don't have an answer for, for your question, but I certainly acknowledge it. Uh, but mm. one thing about yeah. that is, like, with the, I think, uh, depending on world, you know, worldwide movement of capital and the economics coming, if the Internet uh, and computer industries continue to, uh, uh, to use the... Uh, um, their workforce from home and come to the point where they really don't need and aren't going to use these giant uh, office edifices that they've created. The economics event, and I don't know if this will happen, but it could. The economics could, could come about where the property management companies fa fall, fall off slowly and then eventually the property owners are forced to, forced literally through uh, economic uh, Darwinianism to convert their buildings to uh, residential, uh, in which case, you know, they'll, they'll end up becoming like, dystopian, uh, Ballardian, uh, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, high rise, you know, high rise buildings filled with people and services that don't totally work. And they're, you know, kind of a kind of a mess. I mean, that's a future that could have science fiction future that could have since we're in a science fiction future right now. Why not extrapolate on that and look at what it could become? That would be a, 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 a great ground for creativity, though, as San Francisco was when I came here, because San Francisco was in a horrible economic slump. Uh, you know, buildings, there were abandoned buildings everywhere. There's incredibly crime-ridden crime city. It was a very dangerous city, uh, much more so than now. I mean, I drove, we, both Gary and I drove taxis at one point in the 80s, early 80s, and uh, it was a dangerous place to be. But there was so much creativity going on in the, in the, in the underground that people didn't see on the surface, and that was uh, happening through this period of, where most people, most go-to-work, average normal folks, consider San Francisco and other major cities, uh, coastal cities primarily, to be, you know, kind of dangerous places they're trying to get out of at that time. Mm. So mm. that was right. the opposite for people that I knew, artists that I knew. Um, so Yeah. And, and, and to return to your, your question, Laura, about, um, about the hippies, yeah, I mean, people forget that along with being a very progressive, very loose, welcoming place, this has also always been a very conservative city. Um, it's, mm -hmm. uh, so when the hippies showed up, the power establishment of San Francisco and, and my friend and former salon colleague David Talbot writes about this really well in his book, Season of the Witch. 
you know, the power establishment, which was dominated uh, had and had been, you know, really from the 19th century by conservative uh, Irish Catholics and Italians. Um, you know, every police chief for the decades in San Francisco was had to be an Irish Catholic or right. Italian. Yeah. Um, the, the church was quite powerful. The sort of what, that, what they now call with a West of Twin Peaks crowd was that was the city's power establishment far more. And um, yeah, they they didn't exactly welcome these uh, these unkempt drug taking youths, and yeah. you know, so it it was uh, the youths, as, <laughs> yeah, um, and and the the to some degree the um, actually Scott Newhall, the Maverick editor of the Chronicle, Herb Kane, there were countervailing voices that actually, to their credit, were like, hey, let's let's uh, let's tap into some of San Francisco's Maverick Bohemian. Uh, history and not just uh, let the conservative business uh, side of San Francisco, which is often forgotten, because don't it's again the gold rush. Going back to the gold rush, as Henry David Thoreau, uh, the great you know philosopher and essayist, was out outraged by the gold rush. He said, "This is like a disgraceful rush for riches. There's nothing spiritual about it. This is just like the worst aspects of America writ large." And in a certain way, he wasn't wrong. And they, uh, you know, that, that you everyone came here to get as much money as they could, and that both that opens into a libertarian, anarchistic, freewheeling ethos, but it also opens into a profoundly conservative, acquisitive, capitalist one. And both of those strains came out of the gold rush. People tend to only for, only uh, emphasize the libertarian side and mm. the freewheeling side, and they forget the business and the the acquisitive and the capitalist side. And so both those forces have always been, you know, strong uh, in San Francisco. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think in terms of talking about the African-American community, clearly the, the founding injustice and the one that is never, the city could never, has never been able to overcome was the uh, debacle of redevelopment in yeah. the late 1950s and early 1960s. Right. And that just eviscerated, uh, San Francisco's African American community. It was really tragic, and they were never rehoused. Um, you know, it was actually undertaken with these sort of idealistic oh, yeah. notions That's that you know we were going to make a better city, and this was happening all over the country. Every city was engaging in urban renewal, which unfortunately, yeah. as James Baldwin said, urban renewal means Negro removal. And, yep. uh, and that, that's ended up kind of what happened. And, uh, you know, to the, the city could, could never uh, undo that. And it's, that's really a, really a tragic thing. I will say in terms of the displacement of black people in San Francisco, it's also true that a lot of black folks uh, who lived in the Bayview and owned homes in the Bayview, people forget that the Bayview had the, and still does, I believe, the highest rate of home, home ownership of any neighborhood in the city. So mm. a, a number of black folks living out there sold out and moved out of San Francisco, which is their right to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a shame that it diminishes the already small a number of, of black folks who live in San Francisco, but it is their right to do that. And it's not displacement. That's a, that's like a free capitalist choice. So there is displacement, but there's also correct you know, free movement of capital. Yeah, and I lived in the Bayview for years. I lived in Western Edition for years. I've lived in many of the different neighborhoods in the city. And that's another thing that's wonderful about the city. Some of the neighborhoods still hold neighborhood character. And right. despite everything, despite all the money washing over it and many people 
being forced out. Um, you know, it, it's still uh, some of the neighbors have. You know, I mean, uh, Portola still has a def- distinctive flavor. Outer Mission has a distinctive right. flavor. I live in nor- uh, North Beach area, and we're hanging in, hanging in, in there. And uh, you know, the Hate Ashbury still has. You know, I mean, there are different neighborhoods that have have a yeah. particular flavor that's that's uh, unique and appealing in a way, and it's still there and hanging in there. And the, the thing is, when newer people come in, is to is for them to become a, is to be aware of those flavors of the neighborhoods that they're moving into and to appreciate that. And they do. I think I think when you get uh, some of the, some of the kids that have left who came here initially for their jobs and, you know, I mean, if somebody dangled two hundred thousand uh, dollars in my face as a 22 year old college graduate, <laughs> I wouldn't answer right. asking questions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. You know, but with that said, you know, when you get people from uh, different different work levels coming here uh, and. I think they're more able to appreciate the brick and mortar world, if you want to call it that, and getting in tune with the neighborhoods that they're in and appreciating them. And this is you know, neighborhood businesses, you know, which San Francisco is one of the cities in the country that's done more than almost any other city to try and help m- maintain and sustain neighborhood businesses, despite how much they've been decimated by COVID most recently and by the, you know, this horrible uh, economic uh, uh, explosion earlier. But I think that can come back around. And I think that yeah. the, the money level, it's, I see it leveling out. I see it, you know, uh, the pressure's off a little bit and people are starting to uh, to uh, to look at uh, at opening new businesses and at, uh, you know, getting back involved in their, their neighborhood, uh, uh, you know, community culture, really. Uh, Inner Sunset, great neighborhood, same thing. You know, there's still people hanging in mm. there who make it a good neighborhood. So uh, I don't know, that's my optimistic take on things. I think there's, uh, we're mm. certainly not without hope at all. Um, yeah. No, absolutely. And I just would add to that that, you know, this is one of the things that makes this city and continues to make it a, a great city is its neighborhoods. And there's an interesting theory that I think there's some truth to it that the reason that San Francisco, or one of the reasons that it has such strong and distinct neighborhood feelings, is the, the same reason that really makes the city unique, which is its topography. Hmm. So you've got these hills, you've got very like violent, sharp geographical uh, barriers uh, between different neighborhoods. And, uh, and it sort of creates an almost like, you know, in Siena, they have the polio and they have the horse race and every neighborhood has their little banner and they all have these banquets. And, you know, this goes back into the 19th century the mission, the pride of the mission when boxing was a big thing. Sure. The mission would take on North Beach, and those neighborhoods were riveted by these by these, these contests. And I, I think a little of that still exists in the city, and it's a really valuable thing. And as as John says, it's a it's really a, a, a laudable that the city has tried is trying its best sure. with limited resources to um, uh, preserve a lot of neighborhood institutions and to keep keep that alive. And you've got microclimates, too. I mean, I came from Michigan and Tennessee, the Midwest and the South. Microclimate was an inconceivable notion in those places. There you had a macroclimate, usually symbolized by a massive hammer smashing you flat with cold and, <laughs> with cold and snow in the wintertime and unbearable humid heat in the summertime. So people lose track of this. But this area, the climate here is insanely fabulous compared to almost anywhere else in the world. And it's worth putting up with a lot of BS to, for that comfort. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> right. I, I mean, I hate to say it, but I go back to Michigan and Tennessee. I, I mean, I have some uh, artist friends in, in Detroit and we own s- several houses there and we've got a little community our kind of arts thing going there. I love Detroit. It's an awesome place, but the winters there, I grew up in Michigan. The winters there are yeah, horrifying brutal. and the people who haven't experienced yeah. them, Gary, 
You know, you would, yeah. <laughs> you've lived there your whole hey, life. I lived in you Chicago know. until I was seven years oh, old, right. so don't okay. tell me about uh, Michigan. All right, all right. <laughs> Chicago's well, pretty bad, a, too. Right. This has been a very... Uh, a much more hopeful conversation and, and a very <laughs> joyful conversation. So thank you both for having it with me. Wow. You're very oh, welcome. Absolutely. Yes, you're welcome. That was writers Gary Camilla and John Law. The book, The End of the Golden Gate, launches at Litquake on May 26th and at the Commonwealth Club on May 27th. I'm Laura Wenis, and you've been listening to Civic. Civic is produced at KSFPLP 102.5 FM in San Francisco. Our theme music is by John Dillon. Our team includes producer and contributor Mel Baker and assistant producer Liana Wilcox. KSFP is a project of the San Francisco Public Press, a nonprofit investigative newsroom. Find our reporting at sfpublicpress.org.